Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders should be aware that during this story, the names and images of people who are deceased will be used in both the podcast and on the website. Change occurs when popular perception demands it of those capable of making it happen. Certain acts, occurring at the right time and with the right conditions, will shift popular perception, or bring a cause into the open. It will force a change within the establishment, as the establishment strives to keep itself well established. This podcast episode is about forms of resistance in the struggle for one particular cause, the recognition of Australian Aborigines and their rights as the original inhabitants of the Great Southern Land. In the struggle for this cause, we have seen varied resistance in varied ways, through physical actions, but also through the development of culture, through the stories we tell, the songs we sing, and the history we tell ourselves about ourselves. One of the most prominent acts of resistance in this cause was a strike that took place in Australia in the 1960s, this most tumultuous time in Western society that saw social unrest and anti-establishment movements occur all around the world. On the 23rd of August 1966, a group of around 200 Aborigines, mainly people of the Gurindji Nation, walked off the Wave Hill cattle station where they had been forced to work and live in horrid conditions for years. They were led by a respected leader of their nation, a man named Vincent Lingari. Today, this is commonly known as the Wave Hill Walk-Off, and lesser so as the Gurindji Strike. This region of land in the very central north of Australia, upon which Wave Hill and many other cattle stations stood, was the land upon which these people's ancestors had lived for thousands of years. The native workers commenced an extraordinary strike that would have massive consequences for modern Australia and modern Australians. The Gurindji forced public Australian perception to see that Aboriginal people around the country had rights, not only as people who deserved decent wages and living conditions, but also land rights, recognition that they were the original inhabitants and caretakers of the regions now being stampeded by cattle. When this strike occurred, there had been an ongoing race conflict in Australia for nearly 200 years. The conflict still exists today, though the way it has been expressed has changed greatly over time. In the beginning, from the late 1700s, it was a very violent conflict, very much a clash of cultures. Over the 1800s, it became a social conflict, and in many ways, a conflict of values. It became politicised into the early 20th century, a politicisation that escalated in the 60s, in no small part because of the Wave Hill walk-off. Like in many places around the world, the conflict became viewed through the lens of decolonization, itself a process mired in the worldwide ideological conflict between communism and capitalism. However, when the unrest of the 60s and the 70s had begun to die down, and as the Cold War came towards its closing stages, 
This conflict continued. By the 80s and the 90s, history became its new battlefield. Specifically, the telling and the learning of history. Questions began to be asked, like, what role does history have in defining today? What does a people's history mean for them? What does it mean for senses of identity, both individual and collective? What is history, and how should it be communicated? Does one type of history, written history, count more than another, say, oral history? These questions became explosive grenades for modern Australian society. The first real shot on this battlefield of history had actually been made in 1968, two years into the Gurindji strike. It was made by anthropologist Bill Stanner, who had worked extensively with Indigenous communities for decades. He was chosen that year to give the Boyer Lecture, an annual talk given by prominent Australians on major social, scientific and political issues. Of Australian historiography and the perspective of national identity, Stanner said there was a great Australian silence. He was alluding to the ignoring of Indigenous identity within the greater cultural framework of the modern nation. He called it, quote, a cult of forgetfulness on a national scale, end quote. As historians picked up their weapons of words and took their positions on this battlefront, others began to join the fray and use the work of historians to build barricades around them and their side, on either side. Politicians, artists, sportsmen, poets, activists, journalists, doctors and nurses, they all got involved amongst many, many more. And still to this day, this conflict continues. So the next two podcast episodes are not only about the story of the Gurindji strike in the 60s, they are also about how rebellion can take many shapes and forms and be of varying degrees of extremity or severity and perceived success. The demand for change requires many acts of demand, and they come in all shapes and all sizes. Lastly, however, this podcast is also about the conflict in general, and about this battlefield of history on which much of it is waged today. What are the establishment positions of history? And how does rebellion within the study and the discussion of history contribute to historical change? So, it's just a few things then. Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me, a podcast that explores the role of resistance and rebellion in forming that crazy world around us. This is our fourth series, Gather Round, People, Part 1. This episode is brought to you by Inclusiveness and Social Justice. We only wish that Inclusiveness and Social Justice could be brought to you by this episode. On the 18th of January, 1788, the first fleet of European settlers and convicts arrived at Botany Bay off the east coast of Australia. On the 26th of January, they moved north 
and founded the first European colony by a huge protected harbour, which they called Jackson Bay. And that's when it all began. What began? Well, for a long time, it was said with certainty across Australia that what happened on that day was the beginning of Australian history. In fact, today, that date, the 26th of January, is a public holiday, officially called Australia Day. It's when the birth of a strong and independent nation, replete with national values that include strength, honesty, hard work and endurance, occurred. The arrival of the First Fleet saw a group of the lowest of the low from British society thrown into the abyss of hopelessness and in the weirdest and harshest place on earth, who against all the odds forged a society and country defined by the right of every person to be given a fair go. But history, of course, history is in the eye of the beholder. Because from another perspective, what happened on the 26th of January 1788 was the beginning of the violent European invasion of a continent that had been occupied by the same peoples since time immemorial. In many quarters today, that national holiday is also known as Invasion Day. It's when the destruction of the most ancient continuous civilization of human beings on Earth began, as well as the systemic cycle of maltreatment against Australian Aborigines that continues to this day. That date also marks the beginning of native resistance to and rebellion against a geographical and cultural invasion and occupation of the country. So what really began was the conflict between Indigenous and European cultures, which would, whether people recognised it or not, frame the development of Australia and modern Australian society. These two perspectives about the meaning of the 26th of January, they represent two extreme positions in this conflict. And being over 200 years old, there are generational perceptions built up all within and around the whole issue. Ideas and preconceptions that have been passed down on both sides for a long time. Opinions towards this history of relations between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australians, they tend to exist on a scale between the two extreme positions as do the actions that come from those varying opinions. Even as we record this episode, in August 2017, the political debate about the meaning of the date rages, as several councils in Melbourne, Victoria, have just decided to cancel all public celebrations on January 26th, saying they, quote, need to make this change to respect our Indigenous people. End quote. It is unknown exactly how or when the first people came to Australia. It is thought to have been somewhere between 40 and 70,000 years ago, during the closing stages of the Pleistocene Epoch, important as it was the end of a period of glaciation, meaning sea levels would have been as low as 100 metres below today's level, and Australia and New Guinea were connected in a single landmass 
known as Sahul. Repeating glaciation would have also made the open sea less daunting, it being widely assumed that the first settlers arrived by a gradual process of island hopping. But this would have still required boats, and it is simply amazing that the ancestors to Australia's Aboriginal populations can lay claim to having possibly been amongst the earliest seafaring humans. I mean, somewhere around 60,000 years ago. Archaeological evidence around Australia cites the use of stone tools, charcoal, and fire, and strong arguments have also been made suggesting that there was a collection and harvesting of seeds, which forces a rethink of Aboriginal prehistory as one only of nomadic hunter-gathering. Of course, an array of extremely ancient cave and rock paintings across the country also reveal the intimate connection between the people who had been here for thousands of generations, the animals around them, and the land that those generations and those animals had all lived together on. When considering the conflict that would arise through the arrival of European settlers in the late 18th century, it's worth keeping in mind that indigenous cultural and actual reaction to European colonization drew upon the collective experience of that 60-somewhat thousand or more years living in Australia. When we talk about a clash of cultures, that's something that one side of that clash brought to the table. There are thought to have been anywhere between half a million and one million people living in Australia in 1788, making up something like 300 different language groupings, forming unknowable numbers of countries or Aboriginal nations, all with variously connected but also varying senses of identity that depended heavily on a sense of familial bonds and kinship. In truth, It's impossible to know exactly what constituted the entirety of Aboriginal Australia, but certainly it was a complex series of social structures spread across the country that drew upon arguably the longest unbroken cultural chain in the world. Today, Australia is the sixth largest country on earth by landmass. Its area, without any land borders, is as the Australian National Anthem puts it, girt by sea, surrounded by the ocean. Now this landmass is just over 16% less than that of the USA. It's a really big place, and there's no Alaska attached to it. The people living there were spread across the entire land, and the vast majority of them shared a common and broad language group called the Pama Nungan group. Despite this, dialects across the land differed enough that those from, say, the eastern coast could not have understood those from the south or west or anywhere of any great distance from them. But there was also a common thread within their spiritual understanding, known today as the dreaming. Now, this weaved its way through their lives, guiding and defining how they interacted with and as part of the land on which they dwelt. That these were some of the conditions of society in Australia at the time of British arrival gives a sense of how very long a period of time we are talking about. You need an absolutely huge amount of time 
for a people to move across such a massive place, traveling, reproducing, spreading, establishing, diversifying, and doing it all again, all at foot speed, until there were people present across all the regions of Australia. This Aboriginal culture is also often described as animistic. There is an inherent understanding of the connectivity of everything to everything else. As mentioned, the spirituality slash mythology is known today as the dream time or the dreaming, but this term is based on an early anthropological attempt to study and classify the indigenous belief structure. A more recent word suggested to be a better translative representation is the eternal. But here, we'll use dream time because it's what we're familiar with. Dreamtime stories are guiding stories that use the animals and the land to convey patterns by which people live their lives and engage with the entirety of the existence to which they belong. There are so many aspects to the Dreamtime and it definitely deserves a lot more expertise on the matter than we can provide here at our humbly defiant podcast. So we will put up links to places where you can educate yourself and gain your own understanding of what the dreaming is up on our website. But I just want to highlight one concept within this whole spiritual mythological aspect that will be important to us. In a worldview where you belong to the land and where the life forces of that land provide the totemic guidance by which you live your life, then you cannot own the land, nor be in a superior position to it or anything in it. Throughout all facets of life and death, you are of the land, and the land is of you. So the idea of possessing it is not just looked down upon, it is absolutely incomprehensible. It doesn't make sense. And don't forget, this concept had been working for maybe 70,000 years. When the first fleet of settlers arrived in Botany Bay on the 18th of January, 1788, they were commanded by Commodore Arthur Phillip, who would become the first governor of the colony of New South Wales. It didn't take long for Philip to realise that Botany Bay wasn't that great a place, and after a few days scouting north, he discovered a beautiful protected harbour that they called Port Jackson. It was decided that the colony would be founded there, which, on the 26th of January, it was. Today, the colony is called Sydney. Philip was issued instructions by the English king, George III, on how to proceed setting up the colony that constituted around about 1,030 people, of whom a little over 740 were convicts and their children. When the British crown claimed Australia, they did it under the doctrine of terra nullius, derived from ancient Roman law. It basically determined that Australia was unoccupied land, and so up for grabs for whomever got there first. Or actually, whomever got there third, and possibly fourth, as the British actually were when it came to finding Australia from Europe. So the Aboriginals did not have land rights. If you told them that, they would have not comprehended the actual idea of it, because well, rights to the land enforced by law implies ownership. And you cannot own that to which you belong. This is essentially the crux of the matter, which is that 
a British and Eurocentric worldview was now going to be applied to an ancient and totally different animistic worldview rooted in these 60,000 plus years of history. In the instructions, there were a couple of parts that directly regarded the native population. Quote, It is therefore our will and pleasure that you do immediately upon your landing, after taking measures for securing yourself and the people who accompany you, as much as possible from any attacks or interruptions of the natives of that country, as well as for the preservation and safety of the public stores, proceed to the cultivation of the land. End quote. Did you like my George III impression? Cultivation of the land is a fairly decent phrase that can be used here to encompass the enforcement of European cultural practice. British law and custom was now going to be applied to this land, whether those whose people had lived there for 60,000 years knew about it or not, or whether they liked it or not. Philip is said to have been constantly worried about attacks by the native groups, but in a manner indicative of what he was really like as a person, he was actually a pretty good bloke, He also took the position that any violent encounter between natives and Europeans was likely to have been instigated by the European. He knew his people. Now, regarding the treatment of the natives, in the king's orders, he went a little bit further. Quote, here he comes again, George III. You are to endeavor by every possible means to open an intercourse with the savages, natives, and to conciliate their affections enjoining all our subjects to live in amity and kindness with them. And if any of our subjects shall wantonly destroy them, or give them any unnecessary interruption in the exercise of their several occupations, it is our will and pleasure that you do cause such offenders to be brought to punishment according to the degree of the offence. End quote. Some have argued, and certainly at the time... Hey, hey, get out of here, George. Some have argued, and certainly at the time there was discontent amongst the British Marines in Sydney, that Philip took these orders too seriously. He was too wary of mistreating the local Euro people. When attacks did happen, some believed that he did not display the necessary force in response so as to deter future attacks. In every conflict, there are so many different stories and reasons for why people take the actions and the positions that they do. There are so many sides to every conflict. Now, in this story, the Aboriginal people of Australia, of course, come off as being the ones who suffer the most, and they do. They're not the only ones to have suffered. We've got to also put ourselves in the minds and empathise with the Europeans who arrived on those boats in Australia's first fleet. That would have been awful, and that's where Australia's non-Indigenous culture grew out from. The British colonisation of Australia began just five years after the conclusion of America's War of Independence. The 13 colonies of the US were no longer viable options for British settlement, so Australia eventually took that role. Britain had also, over the 18th century, really developed a sense of morality that saw criminality as an inherent trait of the lower classes, measurable and able to be categorised. The major cities were immersed in a gin craze, the only drink affordable to the poor, and which was very often not gin, but turpentine or some other such poison. 
Social and criminal turmoil abounded within such a messed up and class-driven system that was still mired in its feudal traditions. It was decided that a penal colony should be established somewhere within Britain's vast empire so that London and Britain could rid themselves of the mass of unwashed criminal poor that abounded everywhere. The first fleet carried just over a thousand people, about two-thirds of whom were arriving in this vast, hot, dry land on the other side of the earth from whence they'd come as prisoners of the British Empire. It was a hodgepodge of lower-class, mainly Londoners, most of whom had barely committed a crime worthy of a serious telling off, let alone a virtual life sentence. Objectively, One might say that sending criminals to an island paradise with the best beaches in the world might not be such a harsh punishment, and that perhaps the British really dropped the ball there. There were certainly people in Britain suggesting the same thing, that it was too lenient. Yep, people argued that being sent in chains for seven months on a rickety ship to the other side of the world with a thousand other miscreants was too lenient. The experience would have been absolutely atrocious. The first fleet was somewhat lucky to have had Philip in charge, as he was at least someone with a sense of humanism to him. Fleets that followed would be defined by horrific conditions, multiple en route deaths, short supplies, and extreme prisoner abuse. Every person sent to build and settle the new colony would have stepped off the boat with the kind of consternation and dreaded uncertainty about the future that is just so tough to imagine. It should be pointed out that the Europeans were also acting off the back of thousands of years of cultural development behind them. In many ways, European culture can be viewed as being just as homogenized as Australian Aboriginal culture or indeed any other regional culture. A stark difference between the two, of course, was in regard to the concept of property and ownership, which in European culture was and is prevalent. So most of the convicts sent to Australia, they were being punished for some form of theft. They were bearing the full punishment for disregarding the social understanding of property rights. It is their descendants who would become the social and cultural instigators of the growing Australian society over the 19th and 20th centuries. Of the non-convict people on board the 11 ships that made up the first fleet, there were naval officers, marines, sailors, civil officers, and an unknown count of free settlers. It's believed that about 80 people died during the voyage, although the exact number is impossible to ascertain. Added to the terrible conditions, there would have also been the harsh treatment of the lower class British as well as Irish, African, French, and American convicts by the men who represented the British Crown, the Marines, and the officers charged with providing the authority structure for this new settlement. I just imagine what, you know, a bunch of people, what they would have thought, coming from all different walks of life, wandering around in the dusty and scorching heat, continuously saying to themselves, how on earth did I end up here? First contact between the local Euro-Aboriginal people and the first fleet of Europeans happened almost immediately after their arrival, and the tensions that built up between these two vastly different groups of people 
coming into contact with each other for the first time, would eventually come to the boil. Revenge attacks were fairly common across many Aboriginal societies, as we covered somewhat in our previous episode on William Buckley. So acts of violence by settlers and convicts on the local peoples would have been met with acts of violence deemed equal in response. Europeans farmed, and they also hunted. The decimation of the kangaroo population around the new colony sowed the seed for the fissure that would open into the gaping wound of Aboriginal mistreatment and abuse. Kangaroo was an important food source for the local Aboriginal nations who came into first contact. The local nation groupings, the Yura, the Kurungai, the Awabakal, they all came to experience food shortage because of European overhunting. Within a year of the arrival of Europeans around the Sydney area, Smallpox killed a tragic amount of Native Australians. Estimates of the death toll range from between 50 and 80% of the population in that region. Arguments have been made in the last 30 years that this may have been done deliberately by introducing smallpox-infected blankets to communities. This is rightfully a well-disputed claim, but it cannot be disproven. The very idea of it is atrocious and is an example of one of those historical grenades that would be thrown during the history wars that would begin in the late 20th century. Smallpox was not only a physical devastation on Australia's first people, it was a cultural devastation as well. Amicable relations depended on diplomacy and passive interaction. The British, partly due to their own social structure, but also that of other indigenous peoples they had encountered around the world, they always sought to find the chiefs of Aboriginal tribes, singular people with whom they could deal and who could speak for everybody. This simply didn't exist. Aboriginal groupings were fluid and varied. Respected elders often gave counsel on important matters or to decide and enforce tribal law, but there was no chief or king or singular leader to represent the Aboriginal side in building a diplomatic relationship. Respected elders still would have made a difference though. But of course, they were amongst those most at risk when smallpox spread, and constituted the vast majority of victims alongside the infirm and the children. Which meant that as Aboriginal culture and society moved into the beginnings of life under colonial rule, they had to do so without the guidance or leadership of those who knew their people's stories and history the best, and whose life experience and wisdom may have contributed to things going better for their people than they ultimately would. Soon, major companies and investors also began to get involved in the colonisation process. Livestock, mainly sheep and cattle, was brought in en masse. By the early 1800s, the wool industry provided the colony's first major industry, and more free settlers and convicts kept arriving, sending Europeans further into the hinterlands in search of ever more fertile grounds. Without meaning to oversimplify, the animistic sense of universal connection that was a cornerstone of all the Aboriginal cultures meant that when the Europeans hunted, 
they weren't taking something from the Aborigines. The natives did not own the kangaroos, as the kangaroo is of the same origin and essence as everything, including each individual person. You cannot own that of which you are a part. But food supply was diminishing, and the Europeans had introduced sheep, which just like the kangaroo and everything else, cannot be owned because it's not a possession. So when the Aborigines started to take sheep to supplement their food supply, they were in fact, in their eyes, just eating sheep, which is a part of everything. But in the eyes of the Europeans, of course, the Aborigines were committing theft and abuse of property rights. Now, they would be held to account in full accordance with the law, British law, not 60,000-year-old tribal and native law. As European settlements spread across Australia over the course of the following 150 years, the amicable relations desired by King George III, well, they were laid to the wayside. A frontier mentality in a foreign and harsh land saw many massacres and much maltreatment and extrajudicial punishment of Aboriginals as well as corruption and discrimination within the judicial system. Whilst the British colonial governments did enact punitive measures on those caught brutalising local peoples, it was not that common, and often the perpetrators simply went unpunished. The colonies that would become the various states of Australia all ran fairly independently throughout the 19th century in how they went about Aboriginal relations. For instance, in Tasmania, which is that island off the southeast tip of Australia, by the 1820s, violence between Tasmanian Aborigines, known collectively as Palawa, and European settlers had escalated to such a level that martial law was instated, meaning that Aborigines could be shot and killed for violating curfew or other restrictions. By 1833, the population of Tasmanian Aborigines, who had been separated from mainland Aborigines for about 10,000 years, and who had numbered anywhere between 3 and 15,000, had become around 200. Let's just let that sit for a moment. This group of people had separated from their mainland kin about the same time as the Neolithic Revolution and very nascent steps of modern human society began to take hold in the Middle East, Africa, China, and India. And in less than 50 years, had nearly been totally wiped out by disease and violence. In fact, by 1905, no full-blooded Palawa survived. In the Northern Territory, the most sparsely populated state or territory in today's Australia, several attempts have been made over the early 19th century to build a settlement or a colony, and most had ended in disaster. Finally, by the 1880s, a north-south route through the country had been discovered, an overland telegraph line had been built between Adelaide in the south and what would become Alice Springs, and soon a railway network which would allow for the expansion of cattle farming, was developed. These beasts could now be brought in in huge numbers to graze 
whatever there was out there to graze upon. Soon there would be thousands of cattle roaming around the red centre on massive tracts of land owned by wealthy British and other European businessmen and conglomerates. It was this and the discovery of gold that began to bring Europeans to this most arid and remote region of Australia. The Aboriginal peoples throughout this region now faced the same issues of disease and food shortage as those in the east, south and west had faced. The cattle were destroying traditional watering holes. They were destroying roots and shrubs. Kangaroo was hunted as it competed with the cattle for food. They now were also living under a legal system that they did not know about or understand. If they took cattle for food, they were punished. Over the following 70 years, the confusion and disarray of circumstance brought the local people into the fold of the European system. Their food supply all but destroyed, they now had to do as Europeans had deemed necessary for a thousand years, and they had to labour, and not just search for food. The work around was in the cattle industry. So Aborigines started working as stockmen and drovers, moving the cattle across the land to graze where no cattle had ever grazed. The women started to work in domestic positions as servants for the stations. They became the labour supply for the capitalist industry. In not long, a culture of exploitation and virtual slavery arose steadily throughout the cattle stations in the Northern Territory. In 1883, around 3,000 square kilometres of the land that the Gurindji had been wandering through and living on for thousands of years was granted to explorer and pastoralist Nathaniel Buchanan. One of the cattle stations built on his new land became known as Wave Hill Station. Check out our website, stuffwhatyoutellme.com for a map of where all this takes place. In 1913, legislation was introduced requiring that Aboriginals receive food, clothes, tea, and tobacco for their work. No money, just food, clothes, tea, and sounds about right. A year later, the Buchanan family sold Wave Hill to the Vesties. They were two industrialist brothers in England whose international meatpacking company now had power over the hundreds of people who worked there. From that point, in 1914, up until the Gurindji strike in 1966, this was now the hierarchy of order. An anthropological report done by Catherine and Ronald Burnt in 1946, who were working for the Australian Investment Agency, which was directly owned and controlled by the Vesties, went against the priorities of their employer and they documented the atrocious conditions under which most of the native population of the cattle stations were living. The Vesties had commissioned this report to try to solve the reasons behind a wartime labour shortage, but by the time the report and the war were over, its greatest message was evident. The pair of people perusers noted common aspects of Aboriginal life on the cattle stations around the Northern Territory. These included that kids under 12 years old were working illegally, living conditions were unacceptably poor, sexual abuse was rampant by both Indigenous and non-Indigenous men on Indigenous women, prostitution was rife, as Indigenous women used sex 
to get extra rations and clothes and other benefits. Across the incredibly vast area that the bound couple travelled, they found that Aboriginal communities of cattle stations also had no sanitation utilities or access to potable water. Disease was rampant and the birth and death rates deplorable. It was not until the 80s that any of this report became public knowledge, but it is seen as probably the first in-depth anthropological survey of Central Australian Aborigines, and it surveyed them at the depths of their appalling treatment under this new European-style governance and cultural occupation. In 1953, Aborigines in the Northern Territory were made wards of the state. Here, we are still about 15 years away from Aborigines being legally included within the Australian Constitution. So, they're still just wards. Regulations were brought in requiring that they be paid a wage, generally at about 50% less than the wage afforded non-Aboriginal workers. The Vestis, though, they refused to pay this wage. So the Gurindji on Wave Hill, they didn't get anything at all, but more exploitation. By now, in the mid-1900s, Australia had set and defined itself as a nation, on the back of a British colonial mindset, but with a slight touch of enlightenment fueled sense of self-assurance, Australia loyally threw young men, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, into the maw of both world wars, Korea, and eventually also Vietnam. A bit of militarism always helps to solidify a national image. This self-identification was as a tough, young, brave, and strong Western country. Preferably white. Social Darwinism had also woven its way through the cultural fabric of white Australia into the 20th century. Across the land, various state and church-led programs that forcibly removed mixed and sometimes full-blooded Aboriginal children from their families began in around about 1905. From the state perspective, this was supposed to serve as a way of bringing Aborigines into the domain of superior British culture, whilst over several generations diminishing the darkness of the skin by breeding them with whites. What it actually did was create more than one generation of adults whose sense of identity had been ripped from them at an early age and never given back. Into the 1960s, this genocidal practice of taking young kids out of their homes and placing them in the houses of strangers was also still going on across the country in the 1960s. Historically, this practice is known as the Stolen Generation. Leftist movements and unions had also built up strength across Australia, socialism and communism being both cheered and scorned, just like in the UK and the US. As a Western capitalist ally, this caused as much rift in society as elsewhere and gave rise to the extended power of unions and socialist parties, both of which had a strong modern history in Australia since the 1800s. We're going to try to avoid talking too much about unions in this podcast as the politics and frictions of them can really dominate a story too much. Suffice it to say... The unions were in amongst this whole thing, the whole time. They became very important allies of the Gurindji people, but also typically bickered 
fought and split into factions, sometimes detracting from or not representing the Gringy properly. Whilst mainstream society may not have paid much heed to the plight of the exploited people on the cattle stations in the Northern Territory, the North Australian Workers Union in the early 1960s were already pushing for an increase in wages for Aborigines, who often weren't even being paid in the first place, as already mentioned. In March 1966, the Conciliation and Arbitration Commission ruled for this increase of pay. However, they also deferred the implementation of their ruling by three years. That's three years. Three years the pastoralists could keep banking the money that their workers should have been receiving. For the Gurindji people on the cattle stations, almost a century into their suffering under European occupation, it was clear that they had no rights in this system. Enough was enough. Three years of extra profits for big business was going to be three more years of suffering for them. Suffering that could be reduced, but for the decision of blurry white men in some big room somewhere calling themselves the Conciliation and Arbitration Commission. So the walk-off, the strike, it was conceived under an old nut tree. A small group of barefoot men sat facing each other, with the eldest of them holding the attention of the others. He was a lean, small and ancient figure. His English name was Sandy Murray. His Gurindji name Tipperjohn. The words he spoke and what he urged of his companions was that they must make a stand. They must walk off the cattle station where they and their kin lived and they must refuse to work until their demands were met. These men were all Gurindji, indigenous to this remote region of northern Australia. Their country, located over 500 kilometres south of Darwin, itself stretches hundreds of kilometres across. For tens of thousands of years, these men's ancestors had wandered across this land, living off it and being of it. Over the last 80 years or so, this land had been trampled upon by massive foreign beasts, cattle, brought in by white men with guns. The white men with guns, the drovers, were themselves just workers for the cattle stations, also enslaved to the needs of the working class in Australia around the turn of the century. In this barren, dusty land, both groups depended on the structure of the cattle stations for survival. The white workers certainly received better wages, rations and conditions, but they were not living in a paradise either. Many positive relations between black and white workers would have been established and maintained throughout the years. But there was a cultural and systemic racism that pervaded amongst the whole industry, just as it did amongst the whole society. In some parts of Australia, Aboriginal workers were treated to the same conditions as white workers. Tipperjohn himself had seen this, as he had travelled to Queensland and elsewhere and spoken with men who had made him see that the conditions at Wavehill Station were unacceptable. The Gurindji would not put up with this any longer. As he spoke, Tipperjohn's voice went up in volume as he implored action from his brothers sitting there with him under this nut tree. 
He questioned the core of what had become his people's existence. He told them, What's for we working Langa Katia? Katia being white people. Why are we working so long for the white people? He said, We want to fight the Katia. Get the country back. This is the essence of the role that Tipperjerm would play in this story, for it was not he who would actually lead his people in what action he implored under that tree. It was one of the men sitting there, listening to these exclamations of defiance and resistance. A man named Vincent Lingari. It was he who would take the ideas of Tipperjerm and put them into action. It was Vincent Lingari who would lay claim to the mantle of leading his people in what was coming next. In 1993, almost 30 years after these events took place, two Australian musicians, Kev Carmody and Paul Kelly, they wrote a song called From Little Things, Big Things Grow. The song tells the story of what Vincent Lingari and his Gurindji people did in reaction to having to live under the neglectful authority of the Vestis, on land that was a part of them, and of which they were a part. It's about this act of defiance and resistance to the power that blurry white men had held over them and their people for so long. And gather round people, I'll tell you a story. An eight-year-long story of power and pride. British Lord Vesti and Vincent Lingari were opposite men on opposite sides. On the 23rd of August 1966, around 200 native workers went on strike from their jobs on the Wave Hill Cattle Station in the Northern Territory of Australia, the cattle station owned by the Vestis. The indigenous workers walked off and set up a camp, commencing what would become an eight-year-long sit-down protest. Over the eight years, this protest became much more than a workers' rights movement, because this particular group of Australians, who would be joined by many others, was going to make all of Australia take a good, hard look at itself in the mirror, at how its Aboriginal people had been treated and mistreated for so long. It was a demand for land rights, and it was a demand for recognition. Gurindji were working for nothing but rations, where once they had gathered the wealth of the land, and daily the pressure got tighter and tighter. Gurindji decided they must make a stand. After not long, the Northern Territory government offered a significant pay rise. However, it was still grossly under what white stockmen were paid, and the Gurindji refused. Proper living areas were quickly being built back on the cattle station, as Vesti and the Australian Welfare Office tried to cajole the strikers back to work with better living conditions. But still, the Gurindji refused. The Vesti man said, I'll double your wages, 18 quid a week, you'll have in your hand. But Vincent said, "Uh uh-uh, we're not talking about wages, we're sitting right here till we get our land. And Vesti man roared and the Vesti man thundered, you don't stand a chance of a cinder in snow. 
But Vince said if we fall, others are rising. Could be why we're sitting in a bedroom making a podcast and not filling out the big stages in Australia. In 1967, the Gurindji moved their camp several kilometres away to Dagaragu, also known as Wati Creek, which they said was one of the sacred spots of their whole region. For eight years, the Gurindji refused to move from Wati Creek, inspiring a series of land rights movements and strikes all across the country. During those eight years, Lingari travelled around Australia, making connections, mates, and gathering support for the Gurindji movement. Along with the unions, other non-Indigenous supporters and volunteers came to help where they could in the resistance. The logistics of 200 people living in a single camp for eight years are huge. Sanitation, food and water supplies were all still issues, despite the fact that, of all the people on earth, these were those with the most knowledge and experience for living in this area. But this land had still been destroyed through cattle farming and so volunteer-driven deliveries of supplies was always welcome. Frank Hardy, a left-wing novelist and journalist, became an ardent supporter travelling to and from Wattie Creek and around the area. He became a conduit between the native movement and the mainstream Australian society, bringing the cause to the attention of the bohemian circles through which he moved. He also wrote a book which he called The Unlucky Australians. Charlie Ward, in his book, A Handful of Sand, said of Hardy that he, quote, could use his skills as a writer to shape the Gurindji situation into something mainstream audiences could comprehend, end quote. This is a vital step in the progress of this cause, in that the establishment position was not only being challenged physically by the Gurindji people, but now also on the cultural plane the society's established narrative of the Aboriginal situation was being challenged. It is also notable that it was a non-Aboriginal who had to do this. During those eight years, significant things occurred to change the position of Indigenous Australians within the framework of modern Australian law. A referendum was held in 1967, a part of which asked the Australian public to decide on allowing Aboriginals to be represented within the Australian constitution, namely including them in determinations of population and empowering the federal parliament to legislate directly for them as a racial group. And still, Vincent Lingari travelled and lobbied, and his people waited obstinately. They continued to refuse the camp set up at the cattle station, and despite the seasonal threats of flooding and then scorching temperatures, they still waited. In 1970, Neville Bonner became the first Indigenous Australian to become a Member of Parliament, filling a casual vacancy on behest of the Queensland Parliament and later being elected by popular vote. What a legend. The government, though, through all this, continued to deny Aboriginal land rights. The furthest they would go was a policy of land control that was conditional on economic viability. In other words, if you can prove that you can make more money than these big companies, then you can have the land back. The establishment also saw a slippery slope. If they conceded to the Gurindji 
and amended the original land lease that the Vessies held, as not only would the floodgates to land rights claims open all across the country, but the social narrative would have to be addressed. If there is something that we must redeem or amend, then mistakes must have been made in our past. If mistakes were made, then our history cannot be squeaky clean and washed in pride and sacrifice and glory and all those honourable things that we count as constituting the virtues of our national identity. Does this sound familiar? Vincent was assured that the government was working for him and his people and that the strike was no longer necessary. But to the establishment, resistance is always unnecessary. In 1972, four men from Sydney walked onto the front lawn of the now old Parliament House in Canberra and planted a beach umbrella to establish an Aboriginal embassy. In another act of defiance within the current of this cause, a focal point of demand for land rights now sat under the nose of Australian governmental authority. Soon the umbrella was replaced by several tents, and protesters and activists from around the country began to gather around it. What became known as the Aboriginal Tent Embassy presented a list of demands to the Australian government in February 1972. Control of the Northern Territory as a state within the Commonwealth of Australia. Legal title and mining rights to all other existing reserve lands throughout Australia. The preservation of all sacred sites throughout Australia. Legal title and mining rights to areas in and around all Australian capital cities and compensation money for lands not returnable to take the form of a down payment of $6 billion and an annual percentage of the gross national income. These were all refused with no discussion. In July, police moved in and evicted the residents of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy. In December, the Australian Labor Party, led by socialist politician Gough Whitlam, was elected to power. This changed everything. When Aboriginal rights protests resumed outside Parliament House in 1973, they were only resolved when Whitlam agreed to meet with the protesters and hear their demands. And it was Whitlam who would also lead the establishment in solving the Gurindji strike, who would bring about the end of the Wave Hill walk-off led by Vincent Lingari. In 1974, a large portion of Gurindji land was handed back to them by Whitlam and the Australian government. In a ceremony that involved Whitlam on behalf of the Australian public, pouring sand into the hands of Vincent Lingari on behalf of his embattled Gurindji. It was a landmark moment and the first successful recognition of Indigenous land rights in Australia. And it would never have happened without the defiance of the Gurindji people. Julian, make me cry. Eight years went by, eight long years of waiting, till one day a tall stranger appeared in the land. And he came with lawyers, and he came with great ceremony, and through Vincent's fingers, poured a handful of sand. The Gringy had succeeded, but although the story of the Gringy people can be wrapped up in a neat package of defiance and success, indeed, it can even be contained within a song. It is still only one act of resistance within a greater struggle that continues to this day. The photo of this ceremony 
whereby Gough Whitlam granted the Gurindji and their people lands on behalf of the Australian public is iconic. Check it out on our website. But here, here's Gough Whitlam himself, standing at Wadi Creek, or Dagaragu as it became known, before Vincent Lingari and the Gurindji people. Men and women of the Gurindji people, on this great day, I, Prime Minister of Australia, speak to you on behalf of the Australian people, all those who honour and love this great land we live in. I want to acknowledge that we Australians still have much to do to redress the injustice and oppression that have for so long been the loss of black Australians. I want to promise you that this act of restitution which we perform today will not stand alone. Your fight was not for yourselves alone and we are determined that Aboriginal Australians everywhere will be helped by it. I want to promise that through their government the people of Australia will help you in your plans to use this land fruitfully for the Gurindji. And I want to give back to you formally in Aboriginal and in Australian law ownership of this land of your fathers. And with that, Mr Whitlam bent down and picked up a handful of the red Wattie Creek dust and, in a reversal of history, returned to the Gurindjis, the land of their dreams. Did you catch that? What the news reporter said? A reversal of history. And it is as simple as that. With an action of one man pouring sand through the hands of another, history was changed. In the next episode... We are going to look at how history was changed and how it became fought about and declared upon and claimed against, all for the sake of establishing a concrete notion of who we are. Because the Gurindji strike is not the end of this story. Despite Whitlam's wishes, Aboriginal people everywhere would not necessarily be helped by that moment of hand-pouring sand. The end had not arrived, as the history wars were yet to come. Next time on Stuff What You Tell Me. Now the key to really nailing closing credits is to speak from the heart. It's got to be impassioned. It's got to be pure. It's got to have a nice piece of music behind it. And it helps if you talk with little pauses like this. We want to thank everybody out there for listening to Stuff What You Tell Me, our humbly defiant podcast about resistance and rebellion. Some people out there say that we're not real rebels, we're just fans of rebellion. That may be true, but to those people we say you can go and get stuffed, because rebellion is a fundamental aspect of what it is to be human, which I'm assuming that we all are. So big thanks to all those out there who have jumped on board liked our Facebook page, Stuff What You Tell Me, visited our website, stuffwhatyoutellme.com, donated money to us through PayPal or Patreon, or written reviews on Stitcher and iTunes. Here's another little pause. 
and Cast Crunch. Now we've often thought about our fans. Are you reviewers? Or are you just fans of reviews? Show us. Show us what you are. Put your stars where your mouth is. Ladies and gentlemen, tell the world what it means when someone says, stuff what you tell me. (laughs) 